The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Democracy is often imagined at its purest when it's at a micro level. Uh, town hall meetings are sometimes imagined as, as a simpler form of democratic governance. So international relations can sometimes feel as though it's, it's just miles away from democracy. And yet, it is the international liberal order which has brought about the vast proliferation of democracy around the world. My guest, John Eikenberry, notes, liberal democracy was both a national and an international project. Its institutions and ideals were premised on an expanding world of trade, exchange, and community. Now, scholars, they talk about liberal democracy, and sometimes it's, it's not entirely clear whether liberalism depends on democracy or democracy depends on liberalism. Of course, it's easy to assume liberalism is necessary to limit the dangers of democracy, but as one of my favorite scholars, Sherry Berman, notes, liberalism unchecked by democracy can easily deteriorate into oligarchy or technocracy. My point is the two are linked. G. John Eikenberry has written about liberal internationalism since the 1980s. He is a giant in the field of international relations. He's a professor of politics and international relations Princeton University, and the author of the new book, A World Safe for Democracy, Liberal Internationalism and the Crisis of Global Order. Our conversation explores political theory and international relations, but also American history and current events. This is the first of my three-part episode arc about the global ascendance of China called liberalism, capitalism, communism. We actually don't discuss China until the end of the conversation. And this isn't by accident. The purpose of this episode is more about establishing context. It's really impossible to grasp the impact of China until we explain the liberal international order and its importance. My hope is that you will have a stronger sense of what is at stake as we discuss China with two different scholars who have very different perspectives. But today, I have a great conversation to share with you, and it will be a wonderful introduction for the next two weeks. So, without more delay, this is my conversation with G. John Eikenberry. John Eikenberry. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you, Justin. It's good to be here. Your book is is fascinating, and 
your research continues to come up in so much of my readings. So I'm very excited to be able to have you here to help explain liberal internationalism, how we came to this point and what it means for us today. I'd like to start out by asking you a very basic question. What is liberal internationalism? What are its key elements? What are its key attributes? Liberal internationalism is one of the great traditions of thinking about world affairs. And this book I've just written, A World Safe for Democracy, is really my effort to capture the essence of liberal internationalism and trace it over really the 250-year history of its, its rise and its multiple uh, incarnations across the 19th and 20th century. But it's a, it's a way that liberal democracies, which emerged in the late 18th century uh, and then the 19th, 19th century when liberal democracy spread around the world, it's the uh, set of ideas and projects that these liberal democracies put forward to organize the world, to, to make the world in some sense congenial with their domestic political systems. So you think of the most elemental definition of liberal internationalism, and you think of Woodrow Wilson, you think of his phrase to make the world safe for democracy. And indeed, that is the, the, the single most abbreviated definition of liberal internationalism. What I mean by that, what, how I construe Wilson's phrase is that the project of liberal internationalism is to create a world so that liberal democracies can be safe, can thrive, can cooperate with each other. And in doing so, creating a kind of ecosystem or a environment or a, a kind of protective geopolitical space so that these countries, starting with uh, the Anglo-American countries of the, uh, and Europe in the, in the 19th century, then more globally in the 20th century and today, can survive and thrive. And so that's the the essence of it. And of course, it has all these different com components. And maybe what I could do is just say a little bit more about the key convictions of liberal internationalism. There is, first of all, a view of openness, that trade and exchange between countries is good, properly managed, exchanging technology and goods and specialization creates growth and opportunity. Institutions multilateral institutions facilitate cooperation. They help governments get over problems of uncertainty and provide opportunities for cooperation. Thirdly, democracies are unusually capable of cooperating among themselves. They have capacities and values to, to work together. They're like-minded. They know that uh, they, in some sense, are vulnerable to predation, to geopolitical warfare that can threaten their domestic institutions, which have a certain Republican fragility to them. And then finally, there's, there's a kind of vision of, of modernity, that the modern world is generating great interdependence, economic and security interdependence. And this is both good and bad. It's a kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation where interdependence creates, as I suggested earlier, opportunities for mutual gain, but also for great dangers. The technologies and scientific breakthroughs are what move humanity forward, but like pandemics or, or global warming, modernity's progress also threatens our mutual existence. So in that context, 
liberal internationalism is a loosely evolving set of ideas and projects and convictions and understandings about the world that have been pursued over two centuries to, to make the world safe for democracy. So you mentioned the title of your book, A World Safe for Democracy. I think it's important to kind of come back to the idea of how liberalism and democracy interplay with one another, because you see them as very intertwined with each other. Liberal internationalism is about making the world safe for democracy. Is there a way that liberalism can function without democracy? I think it's very hard to envisage that. I, I think we can start kind of historically that you have in the, the rise of liberal democracies, lots of a kind of confluence of different developments that emerged again in the 18th and 19th century, where it was both a movement to really out of the, the French Revolution, the kind of the liberal vision, political theorists and activists in Europe and North America, trying to conjure principles that would allow these transforming, modernizing societies to navigate between a kind of radical left social socialist pathway, the kind of extreme uh, version of the French Revolution on the, on the one hand, and the conservative backlash on the other. So finding a way to establish stable rule-based order. This is the liberalism of rule of law, constitutionalism. It it builds on the Republican political tradition, which goes all the way back to ancient, ancient Rome. The democratic tradition uh, it had a somewhat separate path to the modern world. It, it, you often trace it back to Athens, not ancient Rome, but ancient Greece. Uh, the demos, the, the rule by the people, of the people, by the people. And this, of course, makes a re-emergence in the wake of the democratic revolutions of the early modern world across the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and parliamentary reform movements in Britain and other democratic movements for greater inclusion around the world. So these two movements, democracy and liberalism, are in some sense separate. They're brought together. You can have illiberal democracy, which would be pure populist relations between a leader and people unmediated by institutions. To some extent, the Trumpianism that we've come through is, is a kind of a weak version of that. It uh, doesn't look like it's going to succeed it, really. But Victor Orban, of course, describes his governance in Hungary as being illiberal democracy. That's a right. great example, too. Right. That's another example. And you can have, on the other hand, a kind of rule of law, liberalism in the sense of rule-based order without a lot of democracy. So a, a Singapore or a country like that, where there is not the kind of wide, wide spread democratic uh, base for government, but there's a commitment to, to rule-based governance, and in that sense, liberalism. So the they come together, they're very, they're very unstable, you might say. They, they come together and go apart. We, we don't know what the future will hold, but we can see that we lived through a period after World War II when the major industrial societies found a way to put the pieces together. I like how you talked about rule of law, because I think that the rule of law is what connects democracy and liberalism together. The way that rule of law tries to place individuals on a sense of equality, according to the law, connects back to democracy in terms of what Dahl referred to as political equality. So I, I think that the two are closer as long as you go through the rule of law, but 
it's it's more difficult if you start to unravel the sense of of rules, the sense of law from democracy. You start to unravel. And to be honest, I think it turns into something that's undemocratic if you start to take away the rule of law. Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, you, I, the genius of the liberal democratic experiment has been this attempt to balance these different values that we share, we share, that we want to preserve that are in tension with each other. Obviously, you think about those values, and this brings us back to liberal internationalism. Think of the, the core values at the, at the heart of liberal democracy, liberty and equality, individualism and community, sovereignty and interdependence. These are all values and institutional principles that you want to have come together in some consolidated political system, but they're not always congenial with each other. And to get, a, get as much liberty as you can means you may sacrifice equality and vice versa. And this, is, this brings us back to liberal internationalism. In many ways, the, the international project of liberal democracies is creating an environment to allow governments to be better able to make those ongoing trade-offs between these core values. You need space and a kind of ethic of tolerance and compromise and give and take, a kind of civic goodwill and, and enlightened self-interest among relevant parties to be able to make those trade-offs because you're, you're going to have to live with compromises. You won't have absolute li liberty. You won't have absolute equality. You're going to have to find ways to balance and, and move forward with those compromises. One of the pieces that I came across that when I was doing my research for this was a piece by uh, Fernando Tesson writing about the Kantian theory of international law in the Colombian Law Review years ago. And a quote that I think is kind of comes back to some of the topics we're talking about, about individualism and, and the way that liberalism kind of relates back to democracy. He said, liberal theory commits itself instead to normative individualism, to the premise that the primary normative unit is the individual, not the state. International law and domestic justice are fundamentally connected. I don't know that that completely aligns with the way that you think of liberal internationalism, but it does bring us back to the idea that the way that domestic states are run has an impact on how we function as a collective unit internationally. Yeah, I think there are several points there that are worth observing. One is, is the Kantian vision of these liberal republics, which he saw emerging in his time, but only barely emerging. He was extrapolating what he thought would be a future with greater salience of these kinds of polities. And he saw the necessity, as I argue in my own book, of, of a kind of international project, that, that a federation of liberal democracies, a, a kind of a community of, of like-minded countries that through their association would be made more secure. And this is, of course, one of the oldest themes of, of liberal Republican theory, that that these kinds of rule of law, limited state constitutional polities are vulnerable to geopolitics. Wars uh, make it difficult for their decentralized rule-based systems to be sustained. It, it, wars and great power pressure moves them in the direction of stronger states to mobilize wealth and material resources for geopolitical struggle. And that tends to strengthen the state and undermine these Republican 
qualities. And, and so re Republican theorists across the, the centuries, indeed the millennia, have worried about this. And what Kant was saying is that we, we need to work together. We need to organize ourselves collectively so that we can sort of like strapping rafts on a violent sea, strapping our, our rafts together to make ourselves collectively more capable to create a zone of peace that will protect our internal institutions. The other point, just very briefly, that I think you were getting at was another very interesting line of argument in the liberal tradition as it relates to international relations. And this is that there's some connection between the domestic commitment to the rule of law anchored in a, a kind of commitment to, to individual rights, uh, particularly as they become articulated in the 20th century, that there is some there's some spillover effect that these kinds of states are more likely and more able to build rule of law relations between states. And this is, of course, an argument that you see made. Locke makes a version of this argument. And in the modern, uh, more recent period, uh, John Rawls, the great liberal political normative theorist, made this argument quite explicit that, that these states that respect the rule of law at home have more inside of their DNA to respect both other states that also domestically valorize the rule of law, but also making these states together more likely to build relations around law, around rule of law, around principled institutionalized relations between them. And so that takes you into the heart of the liberal tradition, those, those Kantian insights. This brings us back to the phrase, your book is titled by uh, World Safer Democracy. That's a, that's a Wilsonian phrase, Wilson's liberal internationalistic vision. You see two different schools in liberal internationalism that, that the world has taken on. One is the Wilsonian one, and the other is Roosevelt's. Can you explain the similarities and differences between the two? Just to start with the, the phrase itself, uh, Wilson has, has been seen as the, 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 the emblem of liberal internationalism, and it's often seen as a call to, for a kind of idealistic crusade to spread democracy worldwide. And what I am trying to do in this book is say, no, that's not the essence of Wilsonianism, but certainly not the essence, however you think uh, about Wilson, about the larger tradition across two centuries, that it's more about building a protective shell so that these liberal democracies can survive and prosper. Now, Wilson does get historical credit for synthesizing liberal strands of thinking that came from the 19th century, the peace movement, the arbitration movement, the free trade movement, the jurists who were interested in international law, all these bubbling internationalisms that were emerging out of the, the, the great expansive efforts of, of the liberal democratic world meeting the forces of modernity that we associate with in the rise of industrialism and the spread of Western societies. In that period, Wilson stepped forward and articulated a vision of, of, a, of world order that would move beyond the, the kind of realist visions of balance of power politics. And it would be a world where liberal democracies, which he saw as the 
premier form of government that was going to occupy the major spaces of the future, one could take advantage of this liberal democratic ascendancy to build a, a more cooperative international order around international law, collective security, and his beloved League of Nations. His view was that the liberal democratic world was on the move, and it that world of democracy could become the glue to hold the larger international order together. Roosevelt, the next generation to follow, lived through a, a different period. Uh, Roosevelt himself was a Wilsonian in many ways. He served in the Wilson cabinet as a young, young official and gave speeches all through the 20s, really, that were of that sort. But obviously, the 1930s were a, were a jolt, a, a, a wake-up call. The world fell into depression and war. And so his generation lived through a much more violent upheaval that seemed to call into question liberal democracy itself. It wasn't on the move, as Wilson saw. In Roosevelt's day, it was facing an extinction movement. It was it looked to be going the other direction. There were just a few democracies left, and fascism and totalitarianism seemed to be aggressively transforming the world and putting liberal democracy on the defensive. And so in that era, Roosevelt was articulating, along with his contemporaries, a vision of the international order as as a kind of project that would itself provide the glue that would hold democracies together. So there was a reversal of, of the relationship between what liberal democracy and international order had to do. And so there was much more emphasis in Roosevelt's day on on creating this kind of protective shell of order that would allow for these democracies to survive, more activist governments, kind of space in which liberal democracies would develop multilateral institutions that would provide capacities for their governments to to pursue full employment and to build successful growth coalitions inside of these reforming liberal democratic societies. So the Rooseveltian revolution was, was, was extraordinary. And we, I think, still live in the world that that moment and Roosevelt's vision and those around him that were articulated at that moment and brought into the post-war era. He didn't live to, to see it. Uh, the Cold War itself intervened to, to reshape it in various ways. But this notion of a, of a free world, of a of a, a liberal hegemonic order where countries would work together as a kind of club where they would trade with each other, they would build uh, capacities and and uh, generate resources for managing their relations, and, and they would engage in, in a much more serious effort at security cooperation than uh, Wilson envisaged. So I guess I would say by looking at these two eras, you're reminded of several things. One is that liberal internationalism has been different things in different moments. Uh, different eras and generations have defined it and pursued it in different ways. And secondly, that the Roosevelt era, in some ways more than any other, speaks to our moment. Because today, while it's not quite a 1930s moment, it is a moment where liberal democracy and its future is very much in question. And there is a new anxiety about whether these 
governments and these polities can renew themselves, solve their problems, and put their kind of liberal democratic societies on a footing that will let them survive and and make their way in the 21st century. All of that is something that's new and leads us back more to Roosevelt's day than to Wilson's day. You're right that President Roosevelt didn't live to see the new world order, but Eleanor did. And your comments just reminded me of the fact that she was so instrumental bringing about a sense of international human rights to the world, which is very different than the Wilsonian view of liberalism. How does human rights differentiate the Wilsonian view of liberalism versus uh, Roosevelt's view? Yeah, I think in some ways it's the difference between the League of Nations and the United Nations, but also the Universal Declaration. The rights revolution really occurred after Wilson. It, It was really more a product of the traumas of the 30s and 40s, and to some extent, the, the sheer uh, savagery of the Holocaust, the reimagination of, of rights and international human rights after World War II was, would not have been as revolutionary as it was if, if you hadn't seen the, the Nazi Holocaust in its horrific complexities. And that, obviously, Nuremberg and, and the the War Crimes Tribunal and War Crimes Proceedings in in Japan, these were a formative moment for pushing forward this notion that the international order needed to have in its principles and social purposes a commitment to protection of basic rights. The touchstone, perhaps, of, of this might be Roosevelt's Four Freedoms, uh, freedom from want and fear, freedom of, of speech and, and religion. There were other freedoms that were informally added. This speech that Roosevelt gave in January 1941 became very important for tying America's emerging role in World War II to a project of making the world better on the other side. Just like Wilson, of course, had his own 14 points, but this was much more about this kind of freedom and and rights of individuals that comes out of his thinking and the uh, New Deal experience. And it was picked up in the Anglo-American Accord, the, the Atlantic Charter, which, which occurs in the summer of 1941. Again, the United States is not in the war yet. Pearl Harbor comes at the end of the year. And now you have this coalition of states, which Roosevelt and others called the United Nations, the Soviet Union was inside of that United Nations, but they were the, the, the war coalition partners who were using and invoking these new rights and principles as part of what the war was about. And you can see that as, as, a, as a kind of a reflection of liberal democracies needing to have some legitimating cover for the efforts of their leaders to mobilize the people. Why are we being forced to pay the price? Why are we sacrificing in this war? Well, we're doing so to make it a better world on the other side. If you follow me, a U.S. reluctant to intervene in the war, if you follow me into this war and we win, we will, we will make a better world on the other side. So there's a kind of war aims inflation that comes when democracies are engaged in these kind of great conflagrations. And that helps explain the post-war 
profusion of ideas about what we can now do. It was both the the fact that this was the most violent and destructive war in human history. And it came in a, a moment of upheaval when, listen to what this generation went through. It went through the Great Depression, the, the rise of total war, the rise of fascism and totalitarianism, the Holocaust, and the dropping of the atomic bomb. All one generation felt this. And how do we build, rebuild the world? How do we pick up the pieces? We want we are liberals in, a, in open liberal societies. How do we reestablish our way of life? And this was the context for this new and more ambitious set of uh, visions that, as you say, Eleanor Roosevelt embodied more than anybody else of a of a world where universal values will in, be enshrined that will guide us into into a, a, a better world. And uh, we're still living through the, the aftermath of that, that moment. The difference in the approach to human rights between Wilson and Roosevelt, to me, says more about Wilson than it does Roosevelt. Wilson's come under a lot of fire recently. I, I don't want to relitigate all of that. But what I found interesting in your book was how you explained that Wilson's view of the South and his view of self-determination of Southerners had an influence in terms of how he approached liberal internationalism in terms of believing that countries, nations, peoples had a right to create the type of society, create the type of governance that they wanted to be able to have. It, It really struck me that some of Wilson's liberalism was based on on almost an illiberalism or a right to illiberalism uh, locally, and that yeah, that it's really an interesting. Um, this is work done by Stephen Skoranek at Yale that has been very influential in my thinking. Uh, the the fraught relationship between Wilson and liberalism. I mean, he did have one foot in the liberal American world, but he also had one foot in you might call it alt America, the the old South. He did not want the South to win the Civil War. He was a, a he, he had a, a northern sensibility about the need for the nation to be one and for slavery for slavery to be put down. But he was but it, there was a, a a racism that was deep and part of his era. He, he he grew up and was born in Virginia, part of the, the Confederacy, lived much of his life life in the North, but but he really was kind of had a bipolar view of, of the world. He segregation, uh, the kind of slow movement of progress. Uh, he was able to use his his liberal views about the kind of the Whig view of, of history that eventually things will, between the races, will get better, but uh, it's best not to move too quickly. And uh, so there was this kind of moral blindness that was always a kind of sad feature of going back and looking at Wilson, because you you do acknowledge and need to acknowledge that he was deeply consequential. He wasn't an innovator in the sense that his idea, they were his ideas. He, he, he took 19th century ideas about international law, the role of public opinion, democracy, and even the more prosaic ideas about a post-war order, the League of Nations, that he came a little bit late to that. Those ideas, the, the British, uh, Lord Robert Cecil, other 
figures who had been thinking about this, Jan Smuts. He's not an intellectual innovator, but he, he, he synthesized ideas and, and helped turn liberal internationalism into a project and bundled the different strands of internationalism. So there's something there that, that you have to say he was a, a positive force. Uh, he, more than anybody, enshrined the idea of democracy and self-determination as important features of the post-war world. It would have, those ideas would need to be embedded in the post-war order. This, this international order would be supervised by a, a association of, of states. So all of this is very much things that he did that set the stage for, for later efforts uh, in Roosevelt's generation and, and into today's era. The 14 points, his vision of, of self-determination, there's some evolution in his thinking that separated him from his earlier chauvinism that led to uh, multiple military interventions in Latin America to, to teach these less than enlightened countries how to govern themselves. So he had all of that kind of condescension, implicit uh, racial and civilizational hierarchical bias in him. So uh, he was, in that sense, a, a, a person that you don't want to celebrate but there was this other side, and uh, the ideas there were progressive ideas that that he that he put out there that mattered. And so we don't want to lose sight of those ideas. We want to celebrate them, even as we have a fairly skeptical view of of Wilson himself. So this is, of course, a a topic that we're discussing when we look at other historical figures as well, trying to figure out what to draw the balance sheet, to what extent did they bend the arc of history towards justice and in what ways did they hold it back? And he's, he's kind of ground zero for a lot of that discussion. It's definitely a complex historical moment and he's a very complex figure. It's complicated too, because some of the ideas that he had that are the most despicable brought him to some of the ideas that were most transformative in a positive way. And I feel that it's the same way with Jefferson too, in some ways. Yeah. Um, it makes it difficult. Yeah. I think and if you step back from Wilson and from Jefferson and say something about the liberal vision of society, it is a vision of an imperfect union trying to be made more perfect. Obviously one of the, the most eloquent spokesmen for this view is, is, former president of Barack Obama, read his eulogy for Representative John Lewis. We've been given an imperfect union with instructions to make it better, and we will do what we can and pass it on to the next generation. So there is a sense, and if you look at the American liberal uh, experience across uh, two centuries, you start with the, the America's original sin, slavery, and the struggles to make it better, the, the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, building on the preamble, Jefferson's preamble to the Declaration, and then later generations, two steps forward, one step back. Actually, racism in America became even more pernicious in the late 19th century with the rise of scientific racism, and it was obviously more widely spread across the world and, and, and then picked up in the most uh, horrific way by the Nazis. But it was there across the world, and the U.S. was part of it 
but there were steps that went the other direction. And in fact, the kind of the sheer brutality of, of the racist vision, as we saw wielded by Hitler and his state, jolted the, the world and the West in a constructive direction. It wasn't, it undermined some of this older civilizational hierarchical thinking that was in the 19th century and moved into the 20th century and, and embraced by people like Wilson. When you saw it wasn't the West that was pristine and capable of, of upholding great values, the problems of the world are taking place inside of the West. Germany is part of the West and look what it's doing. Uh, the barbarians are not simply on the other side of the gate. They are inside of our own societies. And this played a role in, in shifting some of the sensibilities inside of the, the liberal imagination away from these older notions of racial hierarchy to more universal rights. And you see those put forward in the, the UN Charter and uh, the Universal Declaration and various other efforts. And those ideas then are picked up by movements for social justice outside of the, the West. And, and then you have uh, the post-war era, uh, nationalist movements, uh, decolonization, and the ultimate transformation of the world from a world organized around empire to one organized around nation states based on notions of self-determination. Let's fast forward, bring us to the present day, because your ideas, your historical ideas are really just about laying a foundation so that we can understand the world that we live in right now. China is the biggest question on everybody's mind from an international perspective. My next two weeks, I'm going to be talking to people about China specifically. I'd like to know your perspective, your view. Has the liberal world order made the global ascendance of China possible? It's a great question. And I think we're, we're definitely debating that, that issue today. I, I think the post-war liberal order, which was built in the shadow of the Cold War and was a subsystem of the global system. It was a Western order. It was led by the United States. And when the Cold War ended, that internal order became the external order. The inside order became the outside order. The, the, the alternatives to liberal international order fell away. The last alternative, the last rival, which, which was Soviet communism. And various parts of the world found themselves making transitions to market society and democracy and, and finding ways to integrate into this liberal order, including China. That process is now looked back upon as something that may have been a mistake that the U.S. invited China into this post-Cold War liberal order symbolized by inviting China to join the WTO. And uh, the U.S. in effect created a monster that's now using the wealth and power that it generated through the growth and, and prosperity that came from that integration to, in some sense, in various ways, attack and undermine that liberal order. And that's what I think you are getting at. And that's a widespread spread thesis, the, the so-called liberal bet that, that was made by American and Western officials on both sides of the political spectrum, from Bush Sr., Bush Jr., Clinton, uh, Obama, these, all these Republican and Democratic presidents saw, in some sense, a, a, a future where China would make 
slow and incremental steps to become a stakeholder in this, this liberal order. And, and it did in various ways do that. And yet the, the high expectations have been dashed. And some of us who were writing about China, the rise of China and liberal order in the 1990s and, and the first decade of the 21st century were claiming that there's something about liberal order that will provide a kind of framework that will tie China to our world in ways that will be good for them and good for us. And I made this argument, the Western liberal order is easy to join and hard to overturn, that China will find incentives to find its way into it, sort of like the Hotel California but it won't escape. That is, that is to say, it will find itself entangled in ways that will lead to, to reforms and often unanticipated steps that will be generated by a Chinese civil society that now has more autonomy and more incentive to, to reform the political order. These were anticipations. And so we're today confronted with, with a, a very different landscape where, where China is in many ways indeed deeply embedded in the the global international order, they're not on the outside. They are they are a veto member of the Security Council of the UN. They, they're in almost all the international institutions, but they're in various ways domestically moving away from liberal democracy. They are more totalitarian than they are liberal democratic now. They are moving away from open pluralistic institutions uh, in ways that are, it's very frightening really and, uh, to, to watch and very worrisome. And internationally, they are playing lots of important games of, of involvement and kind of reform in ways to make the world safe for autocracy rather than democracy. So they are on the, in that sense, on the outside. And we're faced with a variety of choices. How do we deal with China? And that brings us to your question. I think the first question you have to deal with is the kind of retrospective question, should we have done things differently? And I, I'm still not there yet. I still think that the bet was one that we almost had to make. Again, remember what we were saying earlier about the, the liberal vision of, of expansion and inclusion inside of liberal society. You have this sense of an unfolding progress of ever more perfect, a more inclusion. You have obviously with race and gender, the suffrage movement, more people inside of these societies become citizens, they, their rights expand. So in that kind of vision of the global system that, that there's inclusiveness as well, that, these, that liberal order is not just something that the West provides for itself, but it has this, these open doors, uh, these universal docking stations that, that other states can dock to and join and the larger aggregate is better for everybody. So I, I think it was almost fated that you could not in 1989 or 1990, 95, uh, even late 90s, have said, we're going to invite everybody into this order except China. It just doesn't seem politically plausible. But we were wrong, I think, in, in, in some of our high-end anticipations that China would make these kind of reform uh, steps that would move them closer to a kind of convergence dynamic. I think we need to be careful because there's a lot of revisionism going on from the 1990s about China. 
that we fall into the same trap of a lot of revisionism 20 years from now about what people are saying about China today, about how it can't change, that uh, democratization is completely off the table. I just, I paired your book with a book by Mark Bessinger. I've been trying to read for a while, Nationalist Mobilization and the Collapse of the Soviet State. And his point was that the Soviet Union didn't look like it was going to collapse. It was impossible until it became inevitable. And he's not talking about just the economic or the specific political system, but literally the the Soviet states, the way that it broke into Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Belarus, Azerbaijan, Armenia, all these different countries, which to be honest with you, I've been reading even more and more about because they've been in the news a lot with the war over uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and, and of course the protests in Belarus. But my point is, is that we may find that in 20 years from now, China's dealing with some of the same issues with, with the Uyghurs, with Tibet, maybe even some other ethnicities that we haven't even thought about that the country's being torn apart from different directions. So I, I think it's difficult to say that democracy or even China's rise is inevitable because it, it, it seems inevitable until, until it's not. That's a very good point, uh, Justin. I, I agree with it. I think we don't know. We, you, in some sense, you have to play the long game, that you have to have some confidence in your own political institutions and way of life and try to keep, keep it on a stable foundation. And you can't, you can't manipulate China. You can't determine its future. It, it, it has to decide for itself. And it's going to go through a lot of, of crises and moments of transition. It's not, it's not on a, a glide path to ever permanent autocracy. There are demographic and social forces. It's a big country. It has its own, as you say, domestic crises and unresolved ethnic and religious tensions. It's going to hit a uh, demographic wall with with a declining uh, labor force and aging population, uh, the middle income trap where uh, a country gets older before it gets richer and it doesn't make the transition to a more high-tech, high-value-added, high-education society. It's trying very hard. It may make it in various ways, but, but, uh, but in other ways not. We, there's a lot that we cannot say about the future. What we do have some control over is our own society and our own community of, of liberal democracies. We've made it easier for China to move in an autocratic, uh, indeed, as I suggest, a totalitarian direction. I say that word advisedly. One of the core features of, of a liberal democratic state and collection of, of liberal democracies is that there is something called civil society that is in various ways outside the reach of the state. But I'm not sure how much of that is going to exist in China with artificial intelligence and the, the total surveillance state that China is becoming. So it is embarked in a, on a path that is moving in a very different direction. But there, there's no guarantee that it will succeed in, in that path. And in the meantime, we've made it easier for them to embark on that path by not reforming 
and making our own institutions better functioning. So that's where, where I would leave the debate that we, we need to uh, get our own house in order and uh, re-legitimate our institutions. And uh, to the extent we are thriving both individually as countries and together as a kind of liberal democratic world, a community of like-minded states, it puts pressure on China to, to rethink its pathway. And that would be the great position to, to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years from now. So as we kind of wrap up, the way that you envision making the world safer democracy seems to be to create a thicker sense of liberalism. I'm not sure exactly what that would be. I kind of think about the EU, the way that it sets standards on governance, the way that it sets standards on democracy to be able to join it. But even the EU right now is having problems with Hungary and Poland, and they're not sure what to do with them. So how do we create this thicker form of liberalism? That is a great way to, to kind of come to the end of our conversation, I, I, because it is a more open-ended question, and I don't have definitive answers. I, I think this is the, the great question to ask. There's a new American administration that's going to come to office, and there seems to be a commitment to, to rebuilding relations among the old partners and, and, and draw in new partners to reaffirm NATO and the alliance uh, relationships in East Asia, return to an emphasis on, on cooperation among like-minded states uh, to, to stand up for liberal democracy. So there's a kind of moment coming where your question will be particularly important. And I, in my own work, it's, it's not in the book, but in, in my foreign affairs article from last summer, I argued, as others have been arguing, that there's, there is a need for a, a, a kind of more formal coalition. Uh, I use the word D10, democracy 10, that already exists in, in an uh, in a, uh, ongoing intergovernmental annual meeting of, of foreign ministry officials that has been going on for 10 or 15 years. But it would be a more cabinet level, uh, head of state level kind of meeting where not a, a formal organization to, to contain China, but, but a more positive vision of, of the G7 countries plus the next generation of liberal democracies uh, from South Korea to, uh, to Canada, Australia and India and Indonesia. There are countries that are dying to step forward and play a role. So a kind of loose coalition of states that would drive the agenda for reforming international institutions, starting with rethinking the WHO and rethinking trade relations, because the trade agenda is going to have to be rethought in a way that will move it from a project for reducing barriers to trade, tariffs and non-tariff barriers, to managing complex interdependence which doesn't mean we're going to make our economies more open to each other. We aren't going to engage in full-scale protectionism or, or mercantilism, but we're going to have more hands-on management of our interdependence so that we can create the conditions inside of our society so that everyday people can move forward, a kind of return to strengthening the life opportunities of working, working day people the middle class who have been kind of the losers over the last 15, 20 years in the age of globalization. So retying ourselves to those constituencies. And that requires the liberal democracies 
doing a double game. One is working among themselves. That's the thicker agenda that you mentioned, because you want to be able to have these societies organized in a way that they can support their social purposes, their environmental standards, their worker standards, their human rights standards, that the entire world may not yet be willing to buy into. So there, it is a subsystem agenda of strengthening our common conditions, but at the same time, and this is why it's, this is why it's a double game, also reaching out to Russia and China and other countries that are not at the core of the liberal democratic world to manage what we can call the great problems of modernity, pandemics, global warming, nuclear proliferation, the instabilities that will come from moving into an age of artificial intelligence, robotics, all of these things that are going to create great advancement, but also great, great dangers. This is the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde nature of modernity. We're going to be constantly looking for ways to harvest the benefits of, of science, technology, and modern industrialism while guarding, guarding against the dangers. That do, that's a, itself also a double move. And that's at the heart of the liberal international vision. So we need more liberal internationalism, not less, but we need it to be reimagined and reformed so that we can bring our societies along and make it a full society kind of project and not an elite project of Davos-led uh, uh, globalization. So we, we have to return to basics. And uh, that would be where I would put my emphasis. Well, John, th- thanks for joining me. I, I read a lot of democracy books each year, literally from 2020. I've read a lot of books this year specifically. And yours is among the most important books to have come out in 2020 on democracy. So thank you so much. Thank yeah, you, Justin, I, I really enjoyed uh, spending time with you and uh, look forward to, to the, the, the conversation because as you said, it's this, these are great issues that aren't going to go away. So we will be in it together for some time. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Yale University Press for a copy of A World Safe for Democracy. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.